You're listening to the Easter service preached at Sojourn East. On Easter, we celebrate our risen Savior and His victory over sin and death. Happy Easter, Sojourn East. He is risen. And I trust that in the comfort of your living room, you're shouting out a resounding, He is risen indeed. Because even though this Easter is unlike any Easter any of us have ever experienced, and even though there is so much pain and loss and sadness in our world right now, and even though there's so much uncertainty about what lays ahead, there is one thing we can be certain of, and that is that Christ's tomb is empty, that he is risen, and that his resurrection changes everything. In 1 Peter 1, Peter tells us that through the resurrection of Jesus, we have been born again to a living hope, not a far-off hope, not an abstract, wishful, longing kind of hope, but a living, unshakable, unconquerable hope. And so today, what I want to do with you is I want to press into this living hope we've been given through Christ's resurrection. And to do that, I want to ask you to turn with me to Joel chapter 2. We looked at the first half of Joel 2 last week, and to give just a little bit of background, what's happening in the book of Joel is God is warning his people that he is about to send a plague of locusts, which is most likely a metaphor for a foreign army. He's going to send them upon his people. And the reason he is doing this is because it's an act of judgment. You see, for, for decades, if not centuries, God's people had been living in open rebellion. Their love for God had grown cold and their hearts had grown hardened. And so God tells them that he's going to send this plague of locusts on them to shake them and to wake them up to him. But before he does, he, he gives them a warning. He sends the prophet Joel, and he, he pleads with them to turn from their sin. He pleads with them to rend their hearts and turn back to him. And the people actually do. And what we have here in the second half of Joel 2 is God's response to their repentance. And so we're going to pick it up, Joel chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 18 to 20, and then verses 24 to 26. Hear the word of the Lord. Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity on his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied, and I will no more make you a reproach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea and his rear guard into the western sea. The stench and foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great, meaning outrageous, things. Fear not, O land, be glad and rejoice, for the Lord has done great things. The threshing floor shall be full of grain, the vats shall overflow with wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the hopper, the destroyer, and the cutter, my great army which I sent among you. You shall eat in plenty and be satisfied, and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. This is the word of the Lord. I know it might seem odd to preach from a minor prophet on Easter, but I promise you it's not. In fact, the first sermon that was ever preached after Christ's resurrection, the first sermon that was ever preached in the history of the church was preached from this text. 
Peter preached it. And you can, you can find it in Acts 2. But as Peter sought to explain the meaning of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus, this was a passage that he turned to. And the reason why is because this passage is filled with promises from God. And Peter knew that these promises found their ultimate fulfillment in and through Christ's resurrection. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians 1, where he reminds us that all of the promises of God find their yes in him. And so what I want to do today is I want to look at two promises God makes here in Joel 2, and I want to show you how these promises find their yes in Christ and his resurrection. And my goal in this, it's not just to give you more Bible knowledge, as important as that might be. My goal is to show you that these promises truly are for you and for me. And my hope is that you will grab hold of these promises and that they will fill you with hope and serve as a ballast of sorts in the midst of these uncertain times. The first promise that God makes, it's in verse 20, he promises victory and deliverance over their enemies. But it goes even more than that. God promises to give them rest from their enemies. You can read that in verse 20 where the language God uses, he says, I'm going to remove the northerner far from you. I'm going to drive him into parched and desolate lands. I'm going to scatter them, all of your enemies, to the ends of the earth, and then I'm going to destroy them. The promise is not just that he's going to give them a military victory. The promise is that God is going to give them rest from their enemies. Now, if you're familiar with the Old Testament and you know anything of Israel's story, you know how incredible of a promise this is. You see, from the time of Abraham all the way up until the time that Jesus stepped into our world, God's people lived with the constant threat of foreign nations and foreign armies looming over them. If it wasn't the Egyptians, it was the Canaanites or the Philistines or the Assyrians or the Babylonians. And it had to be such an exhausting existence, always living either on the defense or living on the run. But what God promises here is he promises to give them rest. No more, no more living on the defense, no more living on the run. And God makes a promise, promises like these throughout the Old Testament. And what's interesting is while he certainly delivers his people again and again throughout the Old Testament, the heart of this promise, true and final rest from our enemies, that never finds lasting fulfillment in the Old Testament. And the reason why this promise never finds fulfillment is because our greatest enemies in life are not other nations, rival nations, they're not locusts, they're not famines, they're not even viruses. Our greatest enemies in life are Satan, sin, and death. These are the sources of all wars, all conflict, all rivalries, all hatred. These are the source of all of our restlessness. And for us to ever find true and lasting rest, these enemies must be dealt with in a decisive and final way. And that is why Jesus came, and that is why he died, and that is why he rose from the grave, to give us rest. The Apostle Paul writes in Colossians 2, When you were dead in your sins, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the written code with its regulations, 
that was against us and that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Paul tells us that on the cross, Jesus Christ took our sin and our condemnation upon himself, which means one, sin no longer has the power to condemn us, and two, sin no longer has the power to control us. The only power that sin still has in our lives is the power we give it by giving into it. And one of the great, almost absurd promises of the gospel is that even when we do, it still cannot condemn us because Christ took our condemnation. And in taking our condemnation, Paul says, he disarmed Satan and his forces, and they can do no lasting harm to us. You see, the resurrection promises us rest, rest from our sin, from the the accusations and the condemnation that comes from it. The resurrection promises us victory and rest from Satan and his forces. But the resurrection also promises us rest even from, you know, what Paul calls the last enemy, which is death itself. Because on the cross and through his death, Jesus Christ defeated death. And if you're in Christ, you don't need to fear death because he took our death. If you're in Christ, you have the promise that you're going to live forever, that even when your heart stops beating, that doesn't mean you're going to cease to exist or move into some great unknown, but rather the promises and the hope is that even when we die, we will continue to live on in the presence of God. And it's there where we will find our true and lasting rest. See, the first promise in Joel that that he's pointing to is the promise of rest from our enemies. And that promise is fulfilled in and through Christ's resurrection. But as long as we live on this earth, our experience of that rest, it's only going to be partial because we still sin. It doesn't condemn us, but we still hear the accusations. And death still looms over us. It still steals from us the people that we love. But the promise we're given is that none of these things will have the final say. That in Christ, we have been given the victory. And I just want to say that because we know how all of this ends, and because we know that these enemies, which we still feel in our lives, we know they're defeated enemies, that should give us, one, incredible perseverance in our fight and struggle against sin. It should give us great hope even when we're feeling hopeless because we know where this is all going. And so I want to encourage you. You know, this is challenging times for all of us. But I want to encourage you to to not give the devil a foothold in your life and to not let sin reign in your life, but to keep fighting the battle because you know we have the victory in Christ. God promises us rest from all of our enemies. But not only that, the second promise that God makes, he promises to restore all of our losses. A verse that has become very near and dear to my heart recently is verse 25, where God makes this amazing promise. He says, I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. This is such a powerful and timely promise for us. 
I mean, right now we are living in a time of great loss. Some of you, you've lost your jobs. Some of you, you've lost, you know, where you were at in your career. Some of you have lost huge portion of your retirement. But then there's other losses. There's experiential losses. You know, the, the senior in high school who doesn't get to experience their high school prom or their graduation, or even get to say goodbye to all of their friends before they go off to college. There is so much loss in our world right now, whether it's experiential or financial. And then there's losses we're gonna experience at this moment, but we experience well beyond this moment. The experience of loss of physical health. You know, our bodies, they wear down and sometimes they break down. And I know so many of you in our church are living with chronic health problems that are gonna be with you the rest of your life. That's a very real loss. We have relational losses. I mean, part of what it means to grow into maturity in life is learning to recognize that so much of life is loss. And our losses in life are real. They're very real. And as much as we, we, want, we pray and we, we ask and plead with God that he would just protect us from the locus of this world, Sometimes he does, but scripture and experience make it abundantly clear that sometimes he doesn't. Now, the resurrection, it doesn't mean that our losses in life are not real. What the resurrection means is that our losses in life are not final, and they will not have the final say. In 1 Corinthians 15, which is Paul's longest and greatest treatment of the resurrection, he writes, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, because we don't live in an agrarian society, I think it's really easy for us to miss the significance of this claim. You see, in farming communities back then, all of the community's hopes and all of their wealth, they were literally plowed into the ground. Their hope was set on the harvest. And if the harvest didn't come, that meant that Financial, st financial hardship would, and possibly even starvation. Everything was riding on the harvest. And the first fruit, which is not a phrase we use, but the first fruit was basically it was the first stalk of wheat or the first grape that would appear on a vine. And that grape, when it would appear and you would take it and you would eat it, it would taste amazing, not just because it was a grape, but because it was quite literally a taste of the future. It was the first fruit of a great harvest that was coming. And what Paul tells us here is that at his resurrection, Jesus Christ, he became a kind of first fruit, a first fruit of what lay in store for all of us who trust in him, that just as he rose from the grave in glory, so too we will rise from the grave in glory, but he also served as a first fruit for all of God's creation. It's the promise that one day everything will be made new. One day all that right now is, is being lost, all that is uh, in the process of decay, all that's spoiling, one day it will be made new. Now Joel gives us a picture of this future day. It's a picture filled with fruitfulness and flourishing and abundance. He talks about threshing floors that are going to be overflowing with grain and vats that will be overflowing with oil and wine. And Joel ends this picture by saying, you shall eat in plenty and be satisfied. 
and praise the name of the Lord your God, who has dealt wondrously with you. And my people shall never again be put to shame. The picture God gives us here in Joel 2 is just one of many pictures he gives us in his word that helps us wrap our minds around the resurrection future that awaits us. In that day, the curse will be reversed, and you know it will be a time of abundance, a time of flourishing, a time, to borrow a phrase from T- Tolkien, where every sad thing will come untrue. You see, the promise of the resurrection is that there is nothing we can lose in this life that God will not one day restore when he makes all things new. Now, God might choose to restore our losses in life in our lifetime. He might choose to do wonderful and mighty things and do it in a way in which we can see, and that's awesome when he does. But even if he chooses not to, the resurrection gives us hope and absolute confidence that on the last day, all will be restored. You know, if you've been worshiping with us over the past month, I've put a number of invitations before you each week. I've encouraged you to spend time lamenting, spend time reflecting on your life, to spend time repenting of your sins. The invitation I want to put before you today, though, is really quite simple. I want to invite you to rest in these promises. You know, we are living in anxious and fear-filled days. And I would tell you that these promises, they have the power to release you from your fears because all of our fears, all fear is always tied to loss. Every fear we have is a fear of losing something or someone we love. But the promise God gives us here in Joel 2, the promise of the resurrection, is that there is nothing we can lose in this life that God will not graciously restore a hundred times over in the world to come. You know, even though we are physically separated at the moment, I pray that we may rest in these truths and rejoice in these truths together this Easter. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com slash east.